June the 5th, 1963. Just south of Akron, an old green township, Tommy Summerick's is making plans with his friends. He's going on a picnic the next day, a birthday party for a classmate. And he'll be hiking at Virginia Kendall Park on the weekend. He could sure use a new pair of shoes, he tells his mom. Tommy is just four days shy of his 16th birthday, but you wouldn't know it to look at him. He stands just five feet tall and tips the scales at 87 pounds. Blue eyes are set into a baby face, and his crew-cut hair is blonde, almost white. Green Township, which will one day become the city of Green, is still a rural landscape, home to farms and swamps and swaths of virgin wood. The Summerick's home was the first to be built in its neighborhood off Moore Road near Shikalemi Drive. That was three years earlier. So when Tommy needs to get somewhere, he walks or hitchhikes. And since his dad is out of town on business, along with the family car, he's going to have to hoof it if he wants those shoes. His mom gives him $20, and Tommy sets off for Nobles, a popular store at Arlington Plaza, five miles from home. There, he picks out a pair of gray suede sports shoes for six bucks and change. He puts the rest of the cash in his wallet and leaves the store at 7.30. Tommy is never seen alive again. From Ohio Mysteries, the Akron Beacon Journal, and BeaconJournal.com, this is Unresolved, a look at the unsolved murders and disappearances from the greater Akron area. I'm Paula Schleiss, co-host of Ohio Mysteries, and helping with this ongoing series, which is covered in this podcast, as well as stories in print and online, are Beacon Journal reporter Stephanie Warsmith and my podcast co-host, Steve Yoder. Now, Unresolved Episode 11, Tommy Summericks and Ruth Guthrie. Tommy Summericks was an independent but responsible youth, a good brother who led his younger siblings in prayers every night before bed, and a good friend who had been delivering newspapers for a classmate recovering from surgery. Just days earlier, he had finished his freshman year at Green High School. Though to a stranger, Tommy's small stature might have made him seem more like a student from the local elementary. He wasn't much of a scholar, his sister Susie Hubble admits. He wasn't the best student. I I, I have a report card. I'm not going to show you. (laughs) But I wasn't a very good student either. (laughs) Other hand, he was the smart one in the family. (laughs) No, Tommy was more of a hands-on kid than an intellectual. More into building model airplanes and dismantling radios 
and hawking things he collected to raise money. In the same bedroom, then, we shared the same bureau. He, he was on one side, and then he would have like a junk drawer that just miscellaneous paraphernalia of everything in there. That's Tommy's brother, Dennis. Dennis Summerix is 67 and lives in the Wayne County village of Doylestown. Susie is 71 now and lives in the Columbus suburb of Westerville, where she raised two boys of her own. The children of Jack and Marion Summerix grew up in Akron's noisy, busy North Hill neighborhood. That was before they moved to the quiet Green Township countryside in 1960. Their childhood became a bucolic routine of playing in creeks, catching turtles in the summer, and skating on frozen swampland that their dad cleared using a blade on his tractor. Tommy also liked to race the go-kart his dad built around those near-deserted township streets, at least until a few more houses went up and neighbors started complaining. Susie was 12 and Dennis 8 when their older brother vanished that day in 1963. Their memories of Tommy aren't very vivid, just wisps of recollections from nearly 60 years ago. Most of what they know about his case come from snippets of conversation with their parents or from newspaper clippings they read later in life. But one thing Susie does remember is that her dad was away when it happened. He worked a variety of jobs at B&W, and sometimes his work took him to Michigan. She and her best friend Diane were outside playing with a pogo stick she received from her birthday when they saw Tommy set off down the road for the store that evening around 6.15. He was invited to a birthday party, and he wanted to get a new pair of shoes to wear to the birthday party. Dennis recalled Tommy was accompanied by a neighbor boy, Bob. But when Bob realized the long walk would make him late for supper, he turned back and went home. Tommy continued alone. An hour later, Tommy entered the store. The clerk recalled his visit what he bought, how much he spent, and the fact that he left at 7.30. Susie wonders if he tried hitchhiking home, or maybe even got a ride to the store from someone who sat in the parking lot waiting for him to finish. We don't know, because Tommy never made it home. That night, Marion Summerix made frantic phone calls looking for anyone who might have seen her son. Then she made a plea to her husband to return from his trip to Michigan. At 1.30 in the morning, she filed a missing persons report with the Summit County Sheriff's Office. Deputies had to consider whether Tommy was a runaway. He was almost 16 after all. And there was that one time Tommy left home after the move to Green when he got into a fight with his parents and walked all the way back to Akron through downtown 
and into North Hill, where neighbors found him at their old house. But no, no way, his family said. There was nothing in his life to suggest he was unhappy. He was looking forward to his weekend plans. And so, investigators searched for him, tracing his likely path from Moore Road to the Arlington Plaza. They interviewed more than 50 classmates and employed helicopters, pond and lake divers, bloodhounds, and even a mounted posse. Here's Sheriff Detective Rob Perkins, who recently took a look at Tommy's case file for us. They spent 800 man-hours searching for him before they called off the search. Um, they went down door-to-door, um, all up on Arlington, down Moore, all the way back to his house. One man, Mr. Witters, lived at 230 Moore Road, said he saw him walking what would have been to the shoe store. That was the only person that remembered seeing him. Tommy's parents made handbills and distributed them to stores and gas stations throughout Southern Summit and Northern Stark counties. They offered a $500 reward for information. They were tortured with scenarios of what might have happened. Mama always thought, well, maybe he has amnesia. Maybe he got, maybe something hit him in the head or something. He also had allergies, asthma. Tommy had asthma. Uh, And one of the things, and I don't know if that was something Mama mentioned or Daddy mentioned, but maybe whoever picked him up, maybe, or maybe this was after he was found, maybe put a bag or something over his head and he couldn't breathe. And, I mean, that you know, we just ran through the, you know, the scenarios with the what-ifs. Days went by, the Summerick's family waiting anxiously for word of their loved one's fate. It was an agony that another family was about to share. June the 12th, 1963. It was another Wednesday, exactly one week from the day Tommy vanished. And 12-year-old Ruth Guthrie was enjoying the annual Midwest Industrial Fair at Talmadge High School Stadium. It was a popular summer event that typically attracted up to 30,000 people during its weekend run. Ruth had earned her way to the fair by doing chores around the house. Her mom, Edna, gave her $2, all she needed for a day of fun. She tucked the money into her pocket and left the family's home on West Howe Road at about 2 p.m. for the one-mile walk to the stadium. The pretty five-foot-one, 90-pound girl with the bobbed brown hair and blue eyes met up with friends, and they spent the afternoon on amusement rides and playing carnival games. As the supper hour approached, Ruth decided it was time to go home. At 5 p.m., she found a phone somewhere, and made some calls looking for her dad to pick her up. It was unseasonably cold that day, windy and temps that only reached a high of 59. But when she couldn't locate her father, she set out for home, walking with two other girls who lived in her neighborhood. 
The trio was together for most of the journey. They took a shortcut through a grassy field near Overdale School, where Ruth had just completed the sixth grade. Then Ruth's two friends peeled off for their own houses, leaving Ruth to walk alone the final three blocks. It was 5 p.m. when Ruth bid her pals goodbye at the corner of Beer Street and Vinewood Avenue. Then she began walking north along Beers. Like Tommy, Ruth never made it home. Talmadge detectives Captain Doug Bohan and Dave Chicola reviewed Ruth's case file for us recently. Chicola said it was Ruth's father, Willis Guthrie, who showed up at the Talmadge Police Department one minute after midnight, saying his daughter was missing. He was looking through other family members, um, some family members in Akron. Hey, I'm looking for Ruth. Has, has Ruth been over here? So he didn't come right over, you know, immediately. Um, but once it got it, they probably decided, you know, what, let's wait till midnight. And at that point, they came and made the police report. There was no way Ruth would stay away voluntarily after the sun set at 9 p.m. She was afraid of the dark. But her mom, Edna, refused to believe the worst. She'll be fine, she told her family at the time. She'll be fine. They'll find her. Talmadge police questioned carnival workers, fairgoers, and Ruth's friends. There were organized searches, 48 hours after her disappearance, and again a week later. Through woods, down abandoned mine shafts, in waterways, on foot, by helicopter, with the help of scuba divers. Police and fire personnel from several surrounding communities pitched in. So did the Boy Scouts. They scoured Northwest Talmadge, every outbuilding, every treehouse, every dumpster. Meanwhile, police officers were overwhelmed, chasing down the numerous leads that kept the phones ringing, Detective Bohan said. They started getting a lot of like, I saw Ruth here, I saw Ruth there, I saw her walking here, and they're following up on all of these leads. It really was a, I have to say, even looking back, it was a tremendous amount of footwork. I mean, they really yeah. did a lot of the pound the pavement. Bohan is impressed at how thorough his predecessors were. They um, interviewed a lot of the carnies, and these guys had traveled. I mean, in the next day or two, it was gone, you know, and they're, they're even they're broken up. You know, part of them went to Lakemore, part of them went to Indiana, part of them went to Columbus. So they're traveling all over, you know, trying to follow up with these guys. I mean, in, in one instance, you know, just to give you an example, uh, a gas station attendant said, hey, I saw one of those carnies leave, and there was a young girl up in the cab. And that's all the information they had right there. And they went down, they interviewed that guy, they find the truck, and they actually go and find the guy, uh, the carney, and then he gives them the name of the girl. There were actually two girls in the cab with him, and they were Akron girls, older. They actually tracked them down. I don't even know how they did this. The Sumricks family kept searching long after the organized efforts ended. I remember my dad and my mom and myself going out on a free time, like on a Sunday afternoon after church, and we go out into the country. We see like some old dilapidated building, and we get out of the car, and we go around and look and everything like that. And I remember we went back out to the road, and along the berm there, there was a buoy knife that I found. That I, found. I dug it out, you know. I said, I said, you know, 
I said, I said, Mom, does, does this have anything to do with the case? But all that time and manpower failed to turn up a shred of evidence indicating what happened to Ruth. As for Tommy, purported sightings continued for weeks, keeping hope alive. People called police to say they saw him at a bus stop on Brown Street, renting a kayak in the Portage Lakes, playing in Firestone Park. Acquaintances said they saw him at a park laying on a bench, and that when they called to him, he darted away. A resident in Norton called to say a boy matching Tommy's description was living on the streets in the area, so police formed a dragnet to catch him. He turned out to be a 10-year-old runaway from Cleveland Heights. Truth be told, both families and detectives in Talmadge and at the Summit County Sheriff's Department were pretty sure Tommy and Ruth hadn't run away. Something more nefarious had happened. And yet, despite the timing and similarities of the two cases, there is no indication the two law enforcement agencies thought the cases were related. Nor did they appear to connect them to the murder of a 12-year-old Coventry Township girl just the year before. Marion Brubaker, whose murder is still unsolved, was ambushed while biking through the woods near her home on her return from the library. Both the sheriff and Talmadge police separately questioned a man that became a key suspect in Marion's death, but there was no evidence he was involved in any of the cases. Authorities eventually determined he was mentally ill and had him confined to an asylum. And so, summer gave way to fall, and fall gave way to winter, and winter gave way to spring. It was May of 1964, 11 months after their disappearances, when the snow had melted and people were returning to the outdoors, that Tommy and Ruth were both discovered. tomorrow for part two of Unresolved, where we'll share the fates of both children, some startling revelations about Ruth's home life, and a shady witness in Tommy's neighborhood that has modern detectives wondering if investigators in 1963 had talked to his killer. This is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. 
Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.